Welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, our auxiliary monthly podcast. In each episode, we will present a discussion of a story as an addendum to our HP Lovecast or a discussion of an independently selected story. We may also interview creators such as writers and artists in the horror and or horror fantasy genres. This month, we are flipping things around a bit, starting by airing fragments on the first Sunday. Our normal episode of HP Lovecast will be published on the third Sunday this month. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. Today's upbeat blues intro and outro excerpt is from The Train, composed and performed by award-winning musician Trevor Sewell. The song is taken from Trevor's album Independence. The song was chosen as a companion to the short story, The Great Armored Train, by this episode's interviewee, Nick Mamatos, from his short story collection, The People's Republic of Everything. Nick Mamatos is a speculative fiction author, editor, essayist, and, as will become quite clear in this interview, a total mercenary. He has been honored with numerous prestigious awards and nominations, such as Stoker's, Hugo's, uh, World Fantasy Award a master of a variety of literary genres that he infuses with his uncompromising commentary, Mamatas is known for his acclaimed and cult publications such as I Am Providence, Move Underground, Bullet Time, and Love is the Law. Today we interview Nick Mamatas about his recent writing projects, including his brand new collection, Wonder and Glory Forever, published by Dover Publications. Hello, Nick Mamatas. It is a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, welcome, Nick. Um, well, the way that we usually do it is we kind of talk about the, the writer's journey and kind of a little bit of background of, of who you are, your, your writing journey, and then briefly on that, and then we get right into the project. So um, we'll go ahead and get started uh, with our first question. And Nick, would you like to start it off? First question I have for you, sir is what is like the distinct Nick Mamatos element of your writing? What is like your auteur element that you feel sets you apart from other writers? There are, there are, I guess there might be a couple. And of course, this is really a question for readers, not for the writer, but I'll try to answer. I would say what makes my work distinctive, which doesn't mean better or worse, but just easy to spot with blindfolded if there's no byline or something, would be a particular focus on point of view and the logical implications of point of view. Motifs like uh, Greek Americana, professional wrestling, communism, wearing, Cthulhu, and cursing. And uh, everything tends to be short. And my novels are shorter than the average novel. My short stories are usually the shortest thing in a book if they're published in an anthology. I really believe in uh, getting in there and getting out. I'm fundamentally lazy, honestly. That is, that is what's going on. <laughs> And so I'm also a putter-inner, not a, not a taker-outer. Many people who write, and many of my clients and many of my friends will write these giant books and remove half of it and find the real book inside the book they wrote. 
I tend to write a book and then have to go back and, and explain things. Oh yeah, that's why he had that gun. Oh yeah, they were brothers. I forgot to mention that. Oh, and I end up having to uh, inject saline solution into a story to make it book plain. So, so those are the main. Uh, you, you know, that kind of makes sense. I remember you were advertising one of your writing workshops and one of the bullet points that you had in your workshop was starting the story as close to the ending as possible. Sure, yeah, and that's, that's Gary Vonnegut's line. Oh, uh, is it? Okay. True. Yeah, uh, I just appropriated it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's absolutely true. I mean, almost everyone, when I teach a class or when I edit something, pretty much the first thing I do is find the beginning of the story, and it's usually somewhere on page five. And I, uh, with this most recent class I taught at the San Francisco Creative Writing Institute, first I had people write up uh, an outline of their story, or a picture of their story, then an outline of the story, to figure out whether they're actually writing a short story or not. Because beginning writers of short stories in science fiction, fantasy, and horror tend to either be writing a premise for a story, and not the actual story. So the, it's all so the entire story is an, an elaboration on the premise without actually getting anywhere. Like, what if my neighbor was a vampire? Okay, well, what if? Then what happens? Like, he's a freaking vampire, and that, that, that's the story. Or it's a seven thousand word summary of the novel they're afraid to write. To the, to the point where, I, in fact, one of my students actually published her novel after I pointed out in the class that this is a novel, not just, you, you haven't written a story here, you've written, you've written seven scenes from a novel. And uh, uh, later on, Valerie Valdez published Chilling Effect, her, her first novel. Kind of going off that question is because you kind of, your interests are very varied. I heard uh, wrestling in there. Yeah. Uh, as a wrestling fan of the 90s. Uh, I can kind of <laughs> sympathize with that one. But you also, your writing is also very multimedia, but also multi-genre. Like your people's uh, Republic of Everything has, you know, if, if all you know, Nick Mamatas is a Cthulhu writer, that's not what you're going to get out of that anthology. It's a whole bunch of other genres. So I guess what I'm trying to say is you seem very multi-proficient in a variety of speculative fiction genres. So with that in mind, are you able to accomplish certain things with different genres? Like, what do you try to do with each one? Or you feel like what's more appropriate in your tool belt genre-wise? Interesting question. I guess I don't see genre that way, but people do see it that way. I certainly run into a lot of people who say, oh, I'm a weird fiction writer, or I am a, a gay fiction writer, or I, meaning that they write gay fiction, not that they must be all gay, uh, or I'm a crime writer, and I just consider myself a writer. So am I writing horror? Am I a horror writer when I'm writing a horror story? Am I, am I an essayist when I'm writing an essay? The projects are different, obviously. I mean, one reason why I went into crime fiction for a little bit, and I am still writing some crime fiction, and uh, I have a story coming out in Ellery Queen uh, next month, is because dark fantasy got a little easy. You set up a situation, you have characters in peril, then you say, oh, then some crazy magical thing happens. Who knows what it was? I don't know. <laughs> and you can end the story. But uh, crime fiction needs a certain rigor to it that uh, that was a, an interesting challenge for me. So I figured, oh, let me, let me see if I can work this out and write a crime story that's, just, that's not just an episode of Law and Order, which uh, frankly many crime stories are. Uh, but that can be a me story and a different genre. So I guess I start with a genre or a concept or an idea and then find a genre. But if I'm writing satire, science fiction is a good vehicle. If I... Uh, I'm writing something that's less humorous than crime is a good vehicle for what I want to say. But I, I tend to the, just, I write it in a lot of different genres, but I also tend not to see myself as a writer of genre fiction or anything in particular, unless I'm actually doing it at that moment. 
Well, would you consider yourself kind of like a mashup writer just because some of the stuff that you do toy around with is a mashup of different, not necessarily genres, but I'll use, I'll use genre kind of all encompassing, but like, you know, move underground is, you know, beat and Cthulhu. A lot of the stories in people's Republic of, of everything is also a, you know, a, a mashup of something that shouldn't, that doesn't normally go together. Steampunk mixed with a uh, pulp writing, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, Move Underground was one of my early works and it's still here. It just came back out in June. So it has some legs. Um, <laughs> and that was basically me. It was a very mercenary decision. I was in St. Mark's bookshop in New York and I was looking at the remainders table, the, the, you know, the deep sale table. And I saw a volume of Kerouac's letters. I said, Oh, wow. And I love Kerouac. I thought, whoa, they love him so much. They'll read us letters. And then I, uh, <clears throat> later that week, I was reading something and they were talking about Lovecraft's letters. So they were collected. I said, oh, wow, they love Lovecraft so much. They'll read us letters. I thought, well, if I put these two guys in the same book, both these fans are going to buy it. All the Kerouac fans and all the Lovecraft fans are going to buy it. No. <laughs> Only the intersection of the two who love both Kerouac and Lovecraft uh, bought it. So in so one way, it's very mercenary. In another way, it was basically me trying to, I enjoyed Lovecraft, but uh, back then, especially, I was not a big fan of his sentences and his writing. I've, I've learned to, my mistake, and I realized how good he was. But like many people early on, I had this, I had this thought that he wasn't a good writer. So I thought, I, I will save him by finding a good writer, stealing that voice, and telling a Lovecraftian story in, in a good writer's voice. <laughs> and this, was, this predates all the mashups. It was, this, this comes before, uh, you know, Jane Austen and zombies and all that other stuff that took off a few years after. So I, I missed that boat. <laughs> I, also missed, I also made it too complex. Like it's, if you read, you know, uh, whatever those uh, Jane Austen and zombies books are called Pride and Bridges and Zombies and whatnot, it really is kind of a, a cut and paste for a lot of it. And then some stitching in and it's inventive and it's a, it's just a norm, but it's, a, it's otherwise a normal action adventure melodrama. And I, I thought I was trying, I was trying to do something different and more interesting. And, on some of it's more interesting in that they came back and people keep talking about it 16 years later uh, as, if, as if they were, were new, not as a, uh, like a, a moment in time. <clears throat> but yeah, I missed the boat, really. And then since then, I tried to get back on the boat <laughs> and haven't done that. So we had Hunter S. Thompson uh, and Lovecraft with me and Brian Keane. Uh, I did Michelle T. and Lovecraft. I did uh, David Foster Wallace and Lovecraft. And these are just me sort of uh, talking about writers I like as opposed to trying to be the mashup guy. You know, I can be the mashup guy and the uh, mafia writing guy and the satire guy and the essayist and the whatnot. As I say, it's not just Lovecraft you're mashing up against by taking great literary folks and mashing up against Lovecraft, but it is, you know, again, like People's Republic of Everything has Mm -hmm. mashups of just, you know, other genres together. Uh, uh, One of the ones I really liked in it was you know, when they're meeting at the, the diner to, um, you know, buy the rights of the, the pulp comic. And I mean, that's a very, yeah, there, there's elements of pulp writing there, but it's a very, uh, uh, what's, what's that movie where they're just sitting, w- waiting for Guffman? It's, no, not Guffman. Or waiting for Godot? <laughs> you know, they're just sitting yeah. around and eating dinner together. You know, it's the elements of that. <laughs> oh, sure, my dinner. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a realist story. Yeah. I was originally had named that story for, I think, a journal was it Indiana Review? It was some, one of the fill in the blank reviews had put out a call for ghost stories. And I knew they didn't really want ghost stories. They probably wanted something about marriage or something. So I thought I'll throw in something where 
the ghost story as the topic as opposed to a ghost at the topic and write a literary story and it didn't go anywhere. They didn't want it, but uh, I didn't buy the issue of that journal and it was something like, <laughs> this ghost story is about a divorce. Well, where's the ghost? No, no, it's the, it's the ghost of the marriage. Like that, it was that, <laughs> that's what they wanted. So I guess mine was too pulpy, but it ended up getting published in the New Haven Review, which is edited by Brian Slattery. Uh, is that the right last name? I, Slattery, Slattery, probably. Uh, he did several novels before and is an inventive writer, a great musician, nice guy. But yeah, that was my attempt at writing realist fiction and just throwing in science fiction as the topic for realist fiction. So I would consider that, I would consider that just normal bourgeois, bourgeois realism. I, I just realized I, I confused uh, Waiting for Godot with My Dinner of Andre. That's the one oh, I yeah. meant to say. That's right. <laughs> right. Your turn. Yeah, the check comes at the end of My Dinner with Andre, not with Waiting for Godot. Right? Is, is there a narr narrative format that you would like to explore that you haven't written in before? Yes and no. Yes, a screenplay would be interesting, but no, a screenplay as... Hollywood would have it where you have to have a certain thing happen on page 22 and a certain thing happen on page 48 is too diabolical and too easy and uh, too treacherous. But if there was ever, and I will say that uh, speaking of the People's Republic of, the People's Republic of Everything, the uh, short novel at the end, Under My Roof, was meant to be, a, is going to be, and may well yet be a film. And I was asked to write the first, second, and seventh drafts of it. Uh, and... They even shot a few scenes from it, but then something happened. I think the couple who were doing it got divorced or there was some kind of conflict. But anyway, it never, it never came to fruition, but I got paid. And that was a, a challenge to write the screenplay for that and then have it vanish for three years and having it come back and saying, oh, well, we, he, we have some other ideas. Can you, get, how we can, can you put these ideas in here? And I'm like, nope, got to get them. <laughs> um, for those who don't know, it's a story about a kid with psychic abilities who can read the minds of the people around him and every, all over the world. That's sort of my use of point of view to create a first person omniscient narrator. And his father builds a nuclear device and declares independence from the United States in his backyard. So a very filmy type of idea because you just, all you need is a house and a, and a 7-Eleven. And you can, you can shoot a whole bunch of film, which is my idea like in the 90s when I first conceived of it. And, very uh, clerks-like. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. And I was involved in that kind of independent cinema in the 90s. I, was, I went to the new school um, right after Kevin Smith went to the new school and stole all the equipment or borrowed all the equipment and didn't bring it back. <laughs> and then he dropped out. And I just sat there like a second finishing school. And I was a gaffer on several films and did a lot of uh, stage management for video production and things like that. I, that was my first job before becoming a writer. Then I realized that I don't want to get up early in the morning. I wanted to stay home. So writing it was... Uh, but anyway, when we were selling the book around in New York, we kept getting notes saying, you know, this kid has a nuclear bomb, but we don't like that kind of thing. Can you just have a girlfriend instead of a nuclear bomb? And indeed, when I got the, uh, like the fifth or sixth draft of the film back, the screenplay, they said they, they, they put in a fucking girlfriend. And I said, I said well, okay, well, I'll take that right back out. No girlfriend for her being. And so I was interested to try to write a screenplay uh, with not a lot of guidance, but also not a lot, but, but with also not a lot of freedom because of budget constraints. And of course, like most screenplays, I went nowhere. I mean, I, you know, I have acquaintances who have been writing screenplays for years and make their living writing screenplays, and you will not see them on IMDb. They make their living selling, writing screenplays, finding a happy producer who then gets bored and throws it away or locks it up in, in some vault or maybe one day we'll make a film. Yeah. And that could be interesting. So if there was a way to write a screenplay that, wasn't, that didn't have to have the Hollywood three-act structure as, in as exact a way as it did and 
that would actually be produced, I'd be interested in that. <laughs> so no, the answer is ultimately no, 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 no forums I haven't already written. Because I was going to say, you know, given the fact that you do have the experience with the film, once you want, would you ever entertain making your own film then? In the old days, that's what I wanted to do. In the 90s, I was, you know, interested mm -hmm. in making, uh, 16 millimeter films and uh, getting involved in video production, like video art and things like that. But honestly, and this will sound weird, I just found it very exhausting and tiring. And uh, I find writing not relaxing, but it's not taxing. I mean, you know, making a film really is physical work. It's like going to work in a factory and having overtime, doing 12 hour, 14 hour shifts and getting away five in the morning. And, uh, you know, that was my family's background. My father was a longshoreman, all my other brothers worked in construction or in restaurants. You know, kicking it till midnight, coming home smelly, coming home burnt, <laughs> uh, oil fires or electrical things, you know, being out in the cold at two in the morning, climbing up ladders. And that wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> then I thought, how about animation? But oh, animation's even more tedious. You're inside, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it takes a half a day to get uh, three seconds in. So the writing it was. So shifting gears uh, just a little bit, Nick, uh, we'd love to hear, you know, we're always fascinated by what our writers do for hobbies and you are into Tai Chi and uh -huh. we'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into it. It's obviously a big part of your, your life and just like to understand how you got into it and then maybe how it impacts your writing. Sure. Well, I was living in Boston and I was a blob. And I thought, oh, I better get into shape. So I wrote to all the martial arts gyms in walking distance because I knew in Boston I was not going to get in a, in a bus or walk in the snow, which is in the snowy there six months a year. And only one guy wrote me back and he was doing Chen style Tai Chi, which is the first kind of Tai Chi. Uh, the Tai Chi you probably see in parks or that sort of thing is called Yang style. It is a, uh, a variation on Chen style. And so I went to the class and it was very hot and sweaty and it was small and interesting and he was a weirdo. And I, and I, you know, had an eye out for fakery in martial arts. There's a lot of fakery, like people who don't practice it really, or they claim to have magical powers, or, oh, this one punch is so deadly, you can't possibly use it. So I said, let's, let's play a little bit. He, you know, he offered to do pushing hands with me. A very simple game where I was trying to unbalance him, he was trying to unbalance me. And I was basically about, probably about 50 pounds heavier than he was. And, you know, I had a little bit experience with other things. So I figured, oh, I can probably get a, a push out of him or see how it goes. But I couldn't move him at all. He was throwing me around very easily, you know, making me tap dance around the place just by, you know, changing my direction. And he said, oh, I'll try this out. And it was really hard and really intense. He was probably one of the best teachers in North America at the time. Just a coincidence, I happened to live nearby. And I, it was so intense that I would actually uh, go to the bathroom. It was a two-hour class. I would go to the bathroom about an hour in, take off all my clothes, shower in the sink and then go back to class. Actually literally showering in class because that how, that's how sweaty it got. <laughs> and uh, then I came out here to California and I, my teacher recommended me to his friend who's a, a teacher, also very obscure. You have to go to a park at a certain time, he's there. If you're not there, that's fine. And just follow along with him and he was very generous and it was very helpful for me. I uh, used to have chronic bronchial infections, I don't anymore. I used to have very severe allergies. They are mitigated to the point where I can actually stay in the house with a cat if I want to without having to go to the hospital. I've done a couple of tournaments and done pretty well in them. I can uh, walk across my seven-year-old's room and step on a Lego and sense it and not jam my foot onto it. 
<laughs> I won't say it's helped my writing very much. I will say I teach the way I learn Tai Chi. When I teach writing, I uh, coach, like coaching an athlete. Think, okay, let's do this again. Let's try this again. Let's focus on this detail. Let's break it down into this. As opposed to most teaching and creative writing in this country is either psychotherapeutic or totally abandons the idea of teaching and they just sort of have the students teach each other while they just sit around and nod. They facilitate the finding of the voice. But I don't think you can find a voice without having a technique through which the voice manifests. And this is the same with Tai Chi. You can, you can learn the moves of Tai Chi. You can practice around and just follow somebody around. But if you don't know what's going on inside, it's not going to work. That is, it's not going to improve your health. It's not going to uh, be an effective martial art. You're just going to sort of be pantomiming without having your legs connected to your sternum, connected to your uh, arms. So when I push somebody, I'm not using my arms, I'm pushing, I'm using my legs against their arms. I'm always going to win. Even if they're twice my size, they're not twice the size of my legs. Same thing with writing. If you can't do a sentence right, if you can't write what you mean in a sentence, then you can't, pre then you can't present meaning in your voice. So for me, I, I stopped being a writing teacher, sort of being a writing coach. So my writing classes are very prescriptive. If somebody in my class says, well, this is not flowing, okay, great, where does it stop flowing? We find the exact paragraph, the exact sentence, sometimes the exact word, say, okay, scratch out that word, or add another word. And, and, teach, and learning Tai Chi is the same thing. When you move your hand, are you moving your pinky first, and then your middle finger to rotate your wrist? Are you rotating your shoulder by mistake? And we break it down on those very small levels to get to a big expression. And I do the same thing with writing now, with teaching writing. Well, yeah. with that in mind, I guess a kind of a follow-up question is, is that something that you see in people who are wanting to write that, you know, they'll go out and they'll buy every single like recommended, this is how you write book, you know, do this, do that, but they're missing that extra bit of, you know, mentorship or coachmanship to get them to that actual level? I will say, I wish they went out to buy every book I'm writing. <laughs> Most of them don't even read any books. Oh, they just go. They just go like, oh, I've seen TV. I've read five books. Or they've only read bestsellers. Or, or especially around here in the Bay Area of California, many people come to my classes saying, I'm, gonna, I'm a fantasy author. I'm writing this fantasy adventure. And it's not a fantasy. It's not an adventure. What it is is often a new age visionary book about an angel or a fairy who's there to tell you, the reader, that the author is a guru who can save the world and save the environment if you just buy the book. So I spend a lot of time saying, you know, uh, saying, what genre are you writing in? What have you read? Have you read anything recently? <clears throat> and trying to really grind them down to getting involved in the world. The same thing with martial arts. If you're not involved with another human being, who doesn't want to be moved or doesn't want to be punched or doesn't want to be grappled, but you're not, you're not doing a martial art. You're just doing a, a, a dance. Mm -hmm. So every martial art has to have some kind of sparring platform. It doesn't have to be dangerous. It doesn't have to be killing each other. But uh, you, have to see, you have to see if it works. And same thing with writing. You have to see if writing works by doing some reading. So I wish people would read these how to write books. Usually what they do is just read tweets about writing. I saw a tweet that says, don't show, don't tell. Or it says, I saw a tweet that says show, don't tell was a CIA plot during the Cold War. So we should really tell all the time, right? This is the kind of stuff that I often get. Well, I think it's a good transition from, you know, let's actually talk about some of books that you've written and are edited that people yeah. should buy. 
And let's yeah. talk, let's start with the very first one. We're going to kind of work backwards here because you just had a new book come out last week, although this is being released in December. So mid-November, uh, you have a new edited anthology called Wonder and Glory Forever. So real quick, give us your elevator pitch. What is this anthology that you've edited? First, I'll say that elevator pitches are bad, but I'll give you one. But first, I just want to warn people that elevator pitches are bad. Okay, give us the 30-second sell us on it. <laughs> sure, sounds good. <clears throat> just because writers sell things on, on letters, not in an elevator talking to somebody. The elevator pitch is good for things like podcasts or for things like not annoying somebody at a convention. Wondering Glory Forever is a collection of mostly recent Lovecraftian fiction with a theme and motif of awe and the sublime, as opposed to doom or light humor. Right? A lot of Lovecraftian fiction is very samey, they hit the same notes, the same, and then everything's doomed, or then I buy, somebody's been shattered. But inside Lovecraft, sort of a, a sub-theme of Lovecraft is wonder and glory. You know, this is a, it's from the last lines of, the, of Innsmouth. We'll be under the sea with wonder and glory forever. And of course, the story's a very racist story. It's about uh, racial degeneration and Lovecraft's fear of uh, contamination of the germplasm. But also in the end, it's like, actually, maybe it's good. Right, the abjection of, ooh, this terrible, gross, thing where I'm subhuman because I'm not white anymore. Oh, maybe it's great. Make that an interesting story. And finding that secondary vein of, th that thematic vein of, wow, wouldn't, wouldn't it be amazing? Is what these stories are all about. Or, whoa, isn't this so mind blowing that even though it's terrible, it's also awesome, is our theme. When I heard the premise of the book, and you know, because we've read a lot of derivative Lovecraft work. It's one of the reasons why I came, we do this podcast is to, you know, look at it. I'm reminded of, there's a comedian, his name's Eddie Izzard. Mm -hmm. And he has a, a skit um, where he talks about the word awesome and how, you know, no one uses the word awesome in its, you know, original uh, definition, which is the universe is awesome. It's unfathomable. It's big. You can't comprehend it. And his joke is, you know, use it to describe a hot dog. <laughs> and uh, I, I, when I, I, I thought of that skit when, you know, when you had first announced uh, this anthology that, you know, is that a facet of love, derivative Lovecraft writing that people are just kind of skipping over to pursue, you know, uh, you know, just making a giant, you know, Cthulhu monster, apocalyptic settings, doom and gloom. Exactly. And here in California, it's even worse. I, I now work as a bookseller. I uh, do cashiering and everything like that. And when I hand people the receipt, they say, awesome. <laughs> you know, it's omnipresent and uh, <clears throat> it has ruined everything. And of course, repetition, you know, uh, cultivates contempt. So Cthulhu emerging from the sea again, uh, who cares? He's just Godzilla or he's King Kong or he's a puppet of King Kong. You know, he's not scary anymore. So finding it ways to use that and other elements of Lovecraftian fiction is not scary necessarily, but to shake up and the idea of unfathomability and the ineffable is sort of what we're after for this. And it's there because this is a reprint anthology. All these stories were published somewhere else. It may be in a small journal or another uh, small press anthology. But I brought them together because it was unlikely that people read all of them or even many of them. And a couple of them were only Lovecraftian because I say so. <laughs> like the Victor Laval story in this book called Ghost Story. <clears throat> it was published in 1999 in his collection. Um, it is very frequently read as a realist story about somebody who's having a, a severe mental breakdown. But even when I read it years ago, I was like, wow, this sounds like Lovecraft, you know, because it, uh, it goes on 
at a certain point about um, the universe and how this person feels. I guess he's like a schizophrenic or something. And, it's, and it struck me even then, like, oh, this guy must have read Lovecraft at some point. And indeed, 20 years later, he came out with the horror of Red Hook, or horror at Red Hook, showing that he was very familiar with Lovecraft. And I spotted it then. I spotted it in the seed of the story. So even though it's not really a Lovecraftian story, because it's a Lovecraftian anthology, and I've got a story now saying it is, it now is. Because it, it has that theme of awe. And it has that theme of the abject that we were going for. And it has that uh, Lovecraftian ancestry. Even though it's not explicitly supernatural in any way, other than the name Ghost Story and uh, some figurative language inside those stories. So would you say kind of like this was the catalyst of this anthology was that you know, you saw these stories that actually underscored the feeling of awe in Lovecraft's writing, but since it was kind of an unacknowledged, you know, a facet of it that you wanted to, you know, aggregate this all together into a book to say, hey, this is here. That's, that's definitely true. Although I'll also say it's very uh, mercenary in that um, about a year and a half ago, I was laid off from my editorial job and I needed some money and I needed some projects and a reprint anthology is easy to do. <laughs> speaking, compared to writing a whole novel or even getting another anthology and uh, Lovecraft anthologies have done very well. I've been in several of them with my fiction and I've made royalty checks, which is unusual for anthologies. So I thought, oh, this would be a good thing to do financially as well. And it has been. In fact, I, uh, when the great shutdown happened in March, like many people, I was caught short with not, not much in the way of savings. And uh, my job shut down because we had a big lockdown here in, the, in California. And what do you know, the, the advance check floated in the moment I needed to pay my rent, like a lucky stroke. So it worked out really well for me on that level. But yes, I mean, I've read many Lovecraft anthologies. I've been in many of them. And uh, it was always sad that there, was a, there would only be one story per anthology about, about this theme, or maybe two. So having them all at once, in a way that also kind of rehabilitates Lovecraftian fiction, I would say, because uh, the reactionary elements of it are uh, either suborned or mitigated or blown up in the process of writing about the sublime and the awe that I thought it'd be useful uh, almost politically as well. Well, let me ask this, just because, you know, it's, it's a very honest question. I know uh, other folks, if you ask, why did you do this book? You know, the answer for the money is not something that people will admit to, but you know, let's just be honest. Uh, people make arts and crafts, you know, it is fulfilling, but there's also a monetary aspect to it. But with that in mind, because one, you have this book too. You've been in a lot of Lovecraft anthologies. Um, but let's just be honest. There is a lot of Lovecraftian anthologies that, well, they suck. <laughs> Even though there is a, a cottage industry of, you know, shilling out, uh, spewing out, whatever the proper term is, Lovecraftian writing here, you know, themed anthologies are a dime a dozen. There, there is, you know, here's an anthology by women writers, which is, you know, a good uh, thing, obviously. But, you know, here's an anthology of, you know, short microfiction of Lovecraft. Here's an anthology of where you take Cats of Ulthar and like, she has your starting point, whatever. The, there's lots of themed anthologies out there. And I would, are, you know, Cthulhu Against Swords, or which we just read. Mm -hmm. That was good, so, I like that one. What's that? That was a good one. <laughs> There's three of them now, so it must have been successful. Um, but, you know, some of them fall flat. So in your eyes, yo, you know, aside from quality of writing, because mm -hmm. I'm assuming a lot of people pick up the pen and say, well, I like Lovecraft. I'm make my own Lovecraft story. And they get, you know, published by their friend in a print-on-demand, you know, micropress or whatever. But, you know, what makes or breaks a, a Lovecraft anthology, be it themed or not themed? What is, 
not necessarily, not necessarily commercially successful, but it can be, but also critically successful. What makes a successful Lovecraftian anthology? Diversity of themes and of interest and a point of view and of methods, which is true of any anthology. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that always annoys me in an anthology is when I see two stories that are very similar. I'll just draw from my own life. You know, a couple of years ago, I was in an anthology of steampunk ghost stories. And I thought, ah, oh, a steampunk ghost story, you know, would be great. A Karnacki story. Uh-huh. Not Hobson's occult detective. I'll write a Karnacki story. <clears throat> and I even said to the editor, is anybody writing a Karnacki story? He said, oh, no, no, no. No one's writing a Karnacki story. So I wrote one. And I, of course, I killed Karnacki immediately. And, and uh, it goes on from there and sort of expands and becomes sort of an alternative history, et cetera, et cetera. Then, geez, five pages down, another Karnacki story. And it's, and it's not blowing up Karnacki or killing Karnacki or doing anything. It's just a, a, a recitation of Karnacki, except that I think uh, one guy's got like a, a steampunk arm. And one of the three people he's chatting with is a girl now. Very innovative stuff. And it was just, ugh, why did you do this? Why did you do Karnacki stories in here? I did an anthology some years ago with Ellen Datla called Haunted Legend, which was true ghost stories. True in quotes, I am not a believer in, in ghosts uh, for the most part. <clears throat> And, you know, sort of these urban legend ghost stories, but written by real writers, as opposed to written by either true believers who are all nuts or by uh, like the local folklorists who can't write. <clears throat> and I opened up the submission to anybody. And of course, how many haunted hitchhiker stories did I get? 30. How many could I possibly publish? Uh, maybe two. I had, okay. One was, uh, one was uh, you can do the funny version and the serious version. That's the trick, right? You can always do the funny version and the serious. But there would certainly been anthologists who would say, oh, these are all great. I'm only in the market for good stories. And if you're only in the market for good stories, you don't end up with a good anthology. You end up with, you end up with a, a misshapen collection of stories that might be good individually, but as a whole, they are less than some of their parts. So an anthology should have stories, and also an issue of a magazine should have stories that do different things. And many Lovecraftian anthologies don't do different things. It's all about that one, you know, when I buy an anthology now, the first thing I do is do every story, and I look at the last sentence of every, of every story. And if more than half the stories end with a single sentence paragraph, I put the book back. <laughs> <laughs> that is like the uh, baby's first trick. How do I make something seem portentous? Oh, I'll put one sentence at the end. <laughs> I'm a writer now. You know, and, uh, and anthologists aren't thinking, oh, I should check to make sure this isn't happening all the time. It's like, having, it's like putting out an album, having every story out with a big gong, every song out with a big gong at the end. It doesn't make any sense, nine gongs in. You know, that's w- true. W- when you put that, it's not a visual metaphor, an audible metaphor that makes, <laughs> explains a lot right there because Again, well, you can't see right there. The shelf of books over there, how many do end in the one sentence for each of the, uh, you know, short stories in it? How ominous. Yes. One other question on anthologies. Uh, what were your thoughts of Lynn Carter putting together his anthologies? Do you think he was ever successful at, you know, putting together good stuff? I know he's always kind of, you know, credited for, you know, bringing fantasy back to, uh, you know, parlance with his uh, Valentine adult series. But, you know, he did a lot of anthologies as well. You think he was a good anthologist? I'm going to horrify you. I've never read any of them. <clears throat> never read any. So okay. I don't know. He seems to have been a very powerful uh, figure. People seem to like his stuff. But I, I just, uh, I guess a little bit, it was after my, t- uh, before my time. And I'm not really a historian. And so I didn't... Think back, I've got some old books and I've got a bunch of old things around, but uh, it never really occurred to me that, oh, I should check out how anthologies go in the past. And Sword and Sorcery, to me, I, I, some of it I love. Small amounts of it I love. 3% of it I love. But the rest of it, I could do without. So it's not, it's not, it doesn't automatically appeal to me the way some other genres. I've tried to read the best 3% of everything and the best 5% of things I like. 
what he says so that in the watch his next short story. It's like, well, all of a sudden the sword and sorcery vision came to my mind <laughs> and I had to pair it up with a beat writer. <laughs> exactly. What you say about Len Carter is, is rather interesting because I think in the intro to uh, Shadows Over Innsmouth, you actually mentioned that you avoided reading H.P. Lovecraft for a long time. And I'm actually have come to Lovecraft very late. I would say, I think I started reading him like maybe five, five. 10 years ago at, at, at the latest. And I was, I was really curious about why you, why you actually avoided reading him. And then when you did read him, what was, what was the first story that you read of his? What were your initial thoughts? Well, partially because I came from it from the wrong way in that I came from it via an interest in role-playing games and uh, goofy things. And uh, the worst way to get introduced to anything is via role-playing games. Or at least the worst thing to get involved with anything is via the typical boys who play role-playing games in the early 90s. That'll turn you off everything, just, uh, just having to associate with them. But then I guess I picked it up um, almost just on a whim. I just, I went to a friend at Tower Books and Records and we were talking and he, you know, uh, and I were in a weird section and I found this book called uh, Starry Wisdom, which had William Burroughs and M. Gira from Swans and other people I was interested in writing in Lovecraftian modes. Like, oh, let me try this out. And that was mind blowing. So I had this sort of uh, avant-garde relationship with the Lovecraft and I said, oh, let me read the original sources. And there were some in there, of course, um, like, uh, but in, like in a, in a comic book fashion. I mean, there was a comic of um, one of the stories in there. And then I, you know, bounced off it a couple of times, but it was available easily online. And I pushed through and I really realized what he was doing, which was that, was that he wasn't a bad writer. He was a difficult writer, writing in many different voices. <clears throat> Almost all the stories have, you know, uh, journal articles, recordings, old stories from uh, uh, hillbillies, intellectual, <laughs> all combining to... to created an authority to create a case for this supernatural event. So he knew what he was doing. And then I got into the mode of realizing, oh, he's writing in many different voices at once, using many different points of view. And once I got in that formal relationship with Lovecraft, then I really understood the stories more and I really enjoyed them. They're just weird whims. And that happens too, like same thing with Tai Chi. Why did I pick Tai Chi? Well, he wrote me back. Mm -hmm. If a judo guy wrote me back first, I would be talking about judo. So kind of, I just kind of breezed into things, I suppose. I think we're going to ask something about one, one more question about this before we move on to Sabbath, but just to kind of wrap up wonder and glory forever. What do you think is one of the, I mean, you picked them all. So obviously they're very good, but to encapsulate this collection, what do you think is the most standout story that uh, if someone had to thumb through the book and just walk away reading one story from wonder and glory forever, what would it be? Well, I won't answer that, but I'll answer it in a way. Okay. If you want something that's hip and contemporary, Nadia Balkan's story, if you want something that, that involves science fiction and the far future and uh, a very clever uh, use of history, Molly Tanger's story, if you want an almost traditional Lovecraftian story, <clears throat> but highly intellectual, Michael Sisko's story, if you want more of me, I got a story by me in there, <laughs> uh, called Farewell Performance, if you like stand-up comedy, because that's basically a story about sound and comedy. <clears throat> but I would check them all out. And uh, I will tell you that how I read an anthology is I put it in the bathroom. And I read a story every time I go to the bathroom. <laughs> Not in order. Just in, just in the order that I, I think oh, I'm going to be here for a long time. I'll read the novella at the end. 
be a quick trip. Where's the flash fiction? I look at the table of contents. And I recommend reading anthologies that way. Even though anthologies spend a lot of time trying to order the stories properly so there aren't first two first-person stories in a row, that kind of thing, I've always read anthologies out of order. I always read the shortest, then the longest, then my favorite author, then poke around the rest. And I recommend doing that with Wonder and Glory Forever. So definitely buy a copy for the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, maybe one for the living room to show off. So that's two, two each. That reminds me of I, a... I like the upsell. <laughs> <laughs> that, so, so it's like that episode of Seinfeld where there's the coffee table book that they put in the bathroom and George can't get rid of it because it's been in the bathroom. So if someone ever tries to get rid of a Nick Mama toss, you know, book, you look at it, was this the bathroom copy? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's yours forever now. All right. So moving backwards, let's talk about Sabbath, um, which is... Well, we're going to put it out and say it. This was a fun book. Yeah. We yeah. both loved it. It's also, well, you know, you've used the word mercenary many, many, many times during this interview. So I, I'm just going to say this must have been another, you know, gun for hire book, which has a, mm -hmm. an interesting genesis. So the yeah. two-parter to this is one, uh, what, what's the selling point on Sabbath? Tell us about that. And how did it come about? I guess the, the official logline of Sabbath is... Highlander meets Seven, or Seven yes. meets Highlander. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and this was a concept created inside Macmillan, the publisher. Um, they had a department called Macmillan Entertainment, the idea for which was they would develop ideas for films. And you can't sell a film treatment anymore, or even a, a script on spec. So they would hire a novelist to write this, the film as a novel, <clears throat> and then attempt to use that novel to generate interest from Hollywood. And so many of the ideas, like my friend uh, Brian wrote a book called Pressure, and it's basically, what if Jaws was stupid? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's basically it. Or um, my, uh, an acquaintance of mine, Bracken McLeod, wrote a story called Stranded, which I think is basically, the terror by Dan Simmons is so great. What if it was short enough to read? <laughs> yeah, that, that, it, it boils down to that. And uh, this story was basically based on, uh, in a very remote way, on a, comic book, a graphic novel about hell's greatest torturer climbing up from hell after the presipope, who's half president, half pope, who rules the world from the Vatican, which is, I guess, one-seventh Washington, six-seventh Vatican, creates a big massacre and awakens Sabbath, who comes up crawling from hell to kill the seven deadly sins who personified for some reason. But they realize that wouldn't make a good film because, you know, hell's greatest torturer isn't a, a heroic figure, as you can imagine. <clears throat> so the two guys enjoyed comic books. They, they uh, found an old copy of What If? What if Conan the Barbarian came to modern times? You may remember this comic book. He like, becomes like a drug dealer or something and like the king of all the gangs, something crazy like that. <clears throat> so I just had to make him a knight character. And they uh, were looking around for a writer. And my agent at the time said, oh, Nick, you can do this. Try it. It'll be quick and easy. It was <laughs> not. I wrote a sample chapter. 17 months later, they get back to me after saying it for every month. Oh, we'll go back to you next month. It took a year and a half. And they said, oh, this sample is dumb. You're treating this like a, you, this is too tongue in cheek. This wasn't a joke. <laughs> uh, I could have sworn, having read the synopsis they gave me, that it was a total joke. It made no <laughs> and I said, no, we want a dark book, dark as possible. So I said, okay, I wrote a dark book. And I wrote them a very dark book about Hex and Sabbath, you know, an inexplicably named knight named Hex and Sabbath. <clears throat> and I had to spend a lot of time trying to explain why he, had, he got away with the name Hex and Sabbath inside the book. And the, the gimmick is that he's the world's worst person. So he's immune from the influence of the seven deadly sins. So I made him a really terrible person. He's a killer. He, he assaults people. You know, he's rude. He's <clears throat> out for himself. And they said, oh, this is way too dark. He's no hero. <laughs> we don't want this to be PG-13. 
He can't kill anybody in the modern times, and he can't have sex with one person, not three, as you had him. Um, and he has to it also be, you know, uh, also other things have to be changed. It should really be a real, it should be a classic romance, like The Terminator. It is a romance know. film, if you think about well, it. Yeah. But The Terminator is not the romantic partner. No. <laughs> That's what they wanted The Terminator to be the romantic partner, too. So I had to rewrite it. And it actually, I will say that some of the suggestions to tone it down were good because it made it more fun and interesting and not so. Some, if it's, you know, some things are too dark, you just don't want to read it. So it was actually, there was some good advice in there. Uh, then the guy in charge quit and the book was delayed. So I was able to go to the right shoulder and say, hey, let's put the uh, bisexual stuff back in. What do you say? Let's, <laughs> let's get to the other thing with the old lady back in there. All right, okay, I got those back in. So at least it's dirty, if not dark. But then the book came out and honestly, the department was gone. There was no real movie interest. And it is my version of a fantasy novel where somebody put a gun to me and said, write a fantasy novel. It needs a sword and a hero and a heroine. And I'm like, okay, I will. I've met requirement. And the entire book is me trying to uh, subvert the requirements. So I think it's a fun book and I think it's a good book. And I wish people would read the original synopsis and then my book and say, oh my God, thank God you were here to write this book. Because the synopsis would have been made for an awful book and they held to it. Is that, is that something that you can release a little bit later? Like your own, like, kind oh, of... Oh, it's not, it's not mine. It's not. Oh. It's just it belongs to somebody else. Oh, okay. You're, ta- you're referring to the original comic book uh, version. Oh, no. I, basically, the comic book was not really sellable as a, as a, as a film. Okay. So they revised it to create this idea of a night character coming to New York. But they were, like, the, seven, like, the, like, uh, the seven of these sins all have their little themes. And so Gluttony was going to be an all-you-can-eat all buffet. Uh, the end's supposed to be like a katana fight versus... Pride has a katana for no reason, and uh, Sabbath has his old sword. Also, the weird things like that that really don't make a lot of sense, but like look good in a movie, maybe. And so I had to make those things look good in a book instead, or read well in a book. And it wasn't satirical, and it wasn't really funny, although it was occasionally goofy, but despite itself. So this four-page synopsis was what I had to work with. I only read the comic book after. Interesting way to go about things. Because I, I would think in a normal environment, this would be just ghostwrite this and give the other guy credit or something, but... No, this is, again, you know, back to one of our original questions, because you do kind of have an, an idiosyncratic, you know, catalog to you. And this is kind of like, is this a Nick Mamatos book? No, this is a Nick Mamatos book. Mm-hmm. And when you actually read it, there's, there is some, yeah, yeah, Highlander meets Seven meets Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag meets yeah. Beastmaster Beyond the Portal Time. But there's a lot of subversion in it. There's you know, there's your political writing in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one yeah. of the, the things I really like in it is, I believe it's uh, gluttony. You know, usually you put gluttony as a representation in a film or whatever. It's food. But in your version, it's not food. It's, it's fame and social media and sucking that in instead. So you have that version of expectations. You know, yeah. lazy uh, or sloth is, you know, cube life, you know, living in a cubicle life. And if you think about, it, yeah, you know, you're not doing anything with your life being a cube drone, which is you know, a little different than what you normally see with, you know, sloth, which is potato chips on the couch or something. Right. And uh, I guess my favorite chapter is the greed chapter, where he basically says, I'm not a sin. Greed is great. And, and the, of course, Sabbath is from the medieval times where, you know, the richest person in the world is not as rich as, as you are, right? No matter how much the king had, he couldn't buy penicillin or a cell phone or an orange in February. <clears throat> so on the one level, like capitalism and greed is good because it generated, you know, uh, the potential for plenty. People really like that. And I'm not a libertarian or anything, but I basically used the libertarian argument uh, about capitalism there. And people were like, oh, wow, you did that. So it was interesting to do that kind of thing. 
And of course, lust isn't really, shouldn't be lust. Like uh, if, you ha- if you personify lust, it shouldn't be a sexy woman. It should be a, a guy drifting off while walking down the street because he's full of lust. Right? It's, the, it's the gross figure who's the lustful figure, not the uh, sexy figure. <clears throat> so lust complains that, oh, people think I'm lust. It's all men's fault, which uh, wasn't in the, in the synopsis at all, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the kind of interesting journey for Sabbath, I mean, did you accomplish what you wanted to accomplish with it? Um, I wrote a good, funny book, so yes. And I got a college fund for my kids, so yes. And even that was a locus of controversy because I wrote in my uh, dedication to my son, Oliver, specifically for his 529 college savings account. And they said, you can't put that in there. That's so disrespectful. And I said, no, no, actually I can, because even though it's work for hire and I'll get some royalties or whatnot, the dedication page is always owned by the author. That's, that's always ours. And we can say whatever we like. And I've been doing this for 20 years. I never heard anybody try to edit a dedication page. Well, I've been working here for 10 years. I've never seen anything so bad in my life. But anyway, then he quit. And he moved on to be a film producer. I don't know if he's producing any films. I hope he did. I hope he, I wish him the best. Yeah, the goals were big publisher, fun, good book to show I can write sort of like a pulpy, fun time book and three college money for my kid. Three, three zings. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Through, through the writing of it, is there anything that you're particularly proud of about Sabbath? Well, greed, the, the greed chapter, like I mentioned, and um, I guess I like that I put Eastern Orthodoxy in there because many people, when they have religion in a book, will devote to Catholicism as like the, the er, Christian set of texts. Like, you know, oh, the, we, need a, we need a cross, we need a chanting in Latin, the Pope, the Vatican, secret societies. So uh, Sabbath comes from before the great schism. So Christianity was more like orthodoxy than it was like Catholicism at that time. So when he comes to the modern era, he naturally gravitates toward orthodox people. So he meets a Russian-American girl at a Ukrainian-American church. I got yelled at on Goodreads for that. Because they're not the same. They're not the same, but if you are an orthodox person, or even sort of like, you know, nominally orthodox, and you want to light a candle for your grandmother, you just go, you, and you see what, you see a church that's orthodox, you just go into it. Yeah. Like, I, like if, I, if I had a light a candle right now, and I don't, I would probably go to the Russian church three blocks away and not the Greek church seven miles away, right? Because yeah. I don't believe that much. <laughs> you need to see like a, us on uh, social media around Eastern time, because during Eastern, uh, Easter time, we are all heretics in his eyes. <laughs> that's right. Western devil's wrong month. Wrong week. Well, before we move on to the People's Republic of Everything, just want to mention that Sabbath actually just got a paperback release. So mm-hmm. this would be a great time for people to go out there and get their two copies of uh, Sabbath, one in the bathroom right, yeah. and one in the uh, living room. <laughs> and on, on that note, uh, we'll, we'll pass along to People's Republic of Everything. So this is your newest... Uh, short story collection. Um, again, can't, well, kind of like Wondering Glory Forever. What sum this one up for us as well? Because this is kind of a, a really, because your prior anthologies, you know, the Necronomicon and so on and so forth have, you know, a little bit more laser focus. This one, I don't want to say it's more shotgun because there is that distinct Mamatas auteur to it, but it does straddle a lot of genres. But you know, tell us, you know, the, the quick pitch on this one, or 30 second on it. Sure. The quick pitch on this one is that it is the best stories that I wrote the last 10 years, plus the short novel Under My Roof. Under My Roof came out originally from Saul Skull Press as a standalone book, right when Saul Skull Press went bankrupt. 
and right when its distributor went bankrupt. <clears throat> so it was really uh, handled poorly as far as the presentation and the distribution, but it got excellent reviews. It got published in, in Germany and in Italy. It was an award in Germany. So it had to get that underground experience of, of, of a word of mouth uh, phenomenon, but didn't really penetrate the market. And as I mentioned, it was going to be a film too. Somebody bought the rights to the film and it started making a film. <clears throat> and the idea originally was that, that when the film came out, Tachyon Publications would publish under my, would republish under my roof. Uh, but the film never came out. And I decided to compile a lot of stories and send them over to Tachyon saying, hey, why don't we have a collection? Called The Spook School and other stories, you know, like crime stories and fantasy stories. And uh, the editor, two editors there, Jacob and Jill, went through them and said, okay, we want half of these stories that we think are very good. And then we'll put under my roof in there too. And so I suppose that if there's a theme to it, it is mostly satirical fiction. It'll, satirize, it'll, either, have a, it'll either be a political satire or satirize genre itself. Or at least it is, it aside. It is a funny book. I mean, there are some very serious stories in it. I'm going to bring up the, the global stop here in a second, but there is actually some comedy in it. Like, you know, the, the final novella in it, the idea of a nuclear bomb that's uh, inside of a, a garden gnome, the 7-Eleven that kind of <laughs> becomes its own country or anything. It's almost Neil Stevenson-esque in its kind of absurdity. Um, but it is a funny book at times, especially the novella at the end. Yeah. Well, I did want to ask about the glottal stop because it's been it's been about what three years, two years, three years since this collection came out. And the cool thing about this anthology is you do have your your notes at the end of each. A short story kind of explaining themes what you want to accomplish uh some of the production notes the the criterion treatment if you will but yeah. for that particular story which uh you, you basically end with i don't know what to think of this one yet hit me up later we're gonna hit yeah. you up now all right well i wrote that because it was a new story all the other stories were reprinted so that was the new one that was previously written for this volume so i didn't want to historicize it without with it being brand new right just like when you asked me about uh what makes me different? I don't want to say because that's sort of up to the readers. <laughs> so the Glottal Stop uh, is about internet uh, mobs and how if you end up on the wrong side of internet mob, you can really be harassed, you know, indefinitely. <clears throat> and I've seen it, you know, I've been online since I was 17, like before the web. I was there with, you know, tiny muds and uh, FTP servers and things like that. And Usenet, all the classic old methods of using the internet. <clears throat> and so I've grown up around the internet and I've seen you know, decade-long feuds and uh, people being driven to insane asylums and, and, and suicides and murders and, and crazy things like this happening over and over again. And of course, now it's become politicized for, with like Gamergate and then of course, even the Trump campaign, you know, had weaponized memes and uh, using misinformation, disinformation, both in 2016 and 2020. And just finding some rando who might have said the wrong thing. It looks a little funny and saying, aha, here's public enemy number one. There is some woman whose name I forget. Her internet nickname is Big Red and she has red hair. I guess she's Canadian and she's, she's talking to somebody about the patriarchy at some protest. <clears throat> and I don't know who she is, if she's an activist, if she's famous. She can't be that famous, I don't know her, except by her face. But if you look on sort of the right wing internet, she's everywhere as like the feminist, the, the archetype of feminism even though she's just some random person who was having an argument with somebody who, and it was an out of context argument. You have no idea who started it or what happened. But this person now is basically famous worldwide. You can't go 
on the internet without seeing her face and her being made fun of. And this also happened to men. It happened to like autistic kids who are teenagers who, you know, get picked on. It happened to uh, famous people. It happens, it happens to innocent, you know, just ordinary people who aren't famous, who aren't on television, just get, just end up being in a meme because they have a funny face or someone took a picture of them and uh, it changes their life. And so the Goggle Stop is basically about that and about an attempt, I guess, to create a counter meme, the Goggle Stop itself, to uh, fight back against that. So it's just something I've just seen a lot of and I wanted to uh, express. And it's happened to me on small ways. Like I had, you know, uh, my picture passed around by Nazi websites. Huh. Um, after I complained about a death metal band playing at a local club that had Nazi ties. Instead of making a secret post, I made a post to them on Facebook and then everyone's like, you canceled that concert. This piece of shit canceled that concert. And I was on, you know, a couple of different websites. We're talking about filling my throat. So I had to like, you know, uh, take it, you know, I had to uh, wash my back for a couple of days. And things like that happen to people all the time. They happen to be in very small ways. But it happens to other people who are in huge ways. I just wanted to sort of write about that. And I guess I did. <laughs> that, that's, my, that's my story now. And so I wrote, it came to my mind and then I wrote it down. <laughs> this is why I don't like to talk about process because like people say, well, where do you get your ideas from? Uh, well, I think about trying to find an idea then I find one. <laughs> then, then I do it. <laughs> the end. <laughs> okay. Something that we've touched on briefly when we were talking about um, Wonder and Glory Forever, you actually talk about it really overtly in the foreword to that book, but it seems it's something that you've uh, explored in I Am Providence and also some of the short stories in People's Republic of Everything, and that is you know, the the cult aspect of some literature. In this case, you know Lovecraft. You have a very critical eye to Lovecraft fandom, I, I would say, uh, from um, uh, Walking with a Ghost, which is the opening story in People's Republic, mm -hmm. everything. Sort of Tom Selleck, Spirit Masher, I Am Providence. Definitely and that one, yeah. But, so, I mean, it's been a couple of years since some of that, you've written some of that stuff. Do you feel like, you know, Lovecraft uh, fandom has gotten better, more, you know, uh, less serious? Because, you know, I, I, you know, I've seen posts where people... Uh, online, you know, take a knock at Nick Mamatos for, he doesn't know what he's talking about, you know, Lovecraft stuff. How dare he? And, and not, not just you, other folks as well. How dare people try to, you know, say something about, you know, white knighting a dead guy from 80 years ago or something. But have you, you know, do you still think uh, uh, it's, you know, I, I don't want to say the word toxic because, you know, we're all Lovecraft fans here as well. But, you know, there is that kind of fandom cult element to it that you do have a critical eye for well i will say i like cult fiction i like i like cult authors and mm -hmm. i uh enjoy the idea of a minor author anyone from nathaniel west to lovecraft to whomever <clears throat> who uh has a large horizontal audience meaning a small audience over a long period of time versus a vertical audience we have a big audience for only a little bit of time so i love cult fiction of all sorts whether it's popular stuff like douglas adams that's still has a cult even though it's popular or stuff that never really broke through, but still percolates around. I mean, I always tell people the best books I've ever read are ones a grimy hippie handed to me. If you're a weirdo street person, you hand me a book, I'm going to read it because it's going to be great. <laughs> so I, I love that kind of thing, whether it's Lovecraft or uh, The Beats or whomever, or Essentialists, you know, whatnot. Um, as far as Lovecraft fandom, I mean, I think there's been some improvement to it, honestly. Uh, people, uh, you know, choosing different guests for guests of honor at conventions and that kind of thing, or being more aware of racial issues and talking about it. At the same time, we had this TV show this summer, Lovecraft Country, based on the novel by Matt Ruff on HBO. 
and on various fan venues, I think there had to be many conversations shut down because every week we was like, they put the black people in the Lovecraft and this is not even a Lovecraft in it. What kind of story is this? You know, just people freaking out constantly. And so there's still that, that negative anti-PC suspiciousness of just, how could you possibly have black people next to the word Lovecraft? That's not good. Who do you think you're trying to fool? Just showing up over and over again. So it's toxic, but the, I mean, I think what is missing in generally is a talent for counter-reading. And I, this is true on the left as well, when people say, this book is toxic, it's harmful, it has harmful stereotypes in it. Look at the hero here is really like a stalker. But people counter-read these things. They don't read for theme, they counter-read, and they make their own themes out of stuff. And that's part of why I did Wonder and Glory Forever, because it has the counter-theme. It turns the racist Lovecraft into their Lovecraft. It's like, oh boy, race mixing is great and wonderful. Here I am under the sea forever. Yay. Like, look at a story like Twilight which is very popular, but also has a, a sort of a huge moral panic. Girls are going to read this book and they're going to find a bad boyfriend who's going to stick around and stalk them. No, they're not. It's a fantasy. And for the girls who are Twilight, the character of Bella was a heroic figure who had a lot of power and a lot of control because the people who read a book about a 16-year-old are, are 13. So the 16-year-old can drive. She can make her own decisions. She can make her own food. <clears throat> she can choose between two boyfriends. <laughs> a 13-year-old can't do any of that. So for, so for them, it's a, a figure of power. They're counter-reading Twilight. And you can counter-read anything, and we should practice our counter-reading to find the kernels beneath it, right? We talk about problematizing texts. That means looking at a text and sussing out the secret authorities within the text. Now it means something bad happened in a text. So that's bad. And that's not a good way to read. Whether you're a right-winger saying, oh, they put black people in there just to annoy me because I'm a white person or whether you're uh, some basic kind of left-wing Puritans, like, and they had, they had a 17-year-old in the story having a hard-on. That's bad, because it's 18 is legal for sex. Meh. And I think uh, what's missing is sophisticated reading. And the cult fiction is really good at sophisticated reading. It, cult fiction becomes a cult because you find yourself in the book. You find yourself in Geek Love. You find yourself in Kitchen on the Rye. You find yourself in all these books, and you, it, cult, reading, cult fiction bites counter-reading. So I'm a, I'm a fan of cult fiction. I think cult fiction can resolve the problem of people not counter-reading. I'll, I'll throw this out there. I've actually haven't heard the term counter-reading before, but I, I dig it. I mean, because, you know, for us, you know, we, we, we apply a lot of different frameworks to a text, you know, yeah. either, you know, intertextuality, compare it to another text and see what unearths or, you know, some other, you know, framework. But I think it's a pretty good term to counter-read something. I mean, well, just look at the films. Look, look at the films. Look at uh, Nightmare on Elm Street films. Oh, yeah. Who's the hero of Nightmare on Elm Street films? Who's the hero? Uh, are you going to say Nancy? No, it's Freddy. Okay. Freddy's the. Which, depending on your lens, is going to be terrible because, well, Freddy Krueger is a, a child molester who you know kills a lot of people. So, yeah. what's the heroic? Uh, but but he's but here's the deal. He's in all of them. He lives through all of them. <laughs> so there's got to be some trait to keep and him coming he is back. He's the person who was a janitor who was abused as a child, murdered by vigilante gang, and is getting his revenge on the bourgeois world. But then you'll have and an Andrew's a wrinkled up loser who lives in a basement, much like many people who enjoy horror movies, who are to the, pushed to the margin of the bourgeois world. You know, when Jason Friday the 13th kills people having sex, he's, he's killing them out of revenge. Like he's the pimply teen who everybody hates. Or who's the hero of the Godzilla films? It's Godzilla. Mm-hmm. He's killing all those people, but still, he's like, ah, I can't stand society. 
<laughs> society is stultifying, and of course, then he becomes a hero in other because other aliens show up and bigger monsters, that kind of thing. Who's the hero of King Kong? That, that's an easier one, right? He's oh, more yeah. sympathetic. King Kong, yeah. But he's killed people. He smashes things up. He's destroying property. You can't let him go wild, right? How about uh, Silence of the Lambs? Who's the hero of Silence of the Lambs? Who got the spinoff show? Let's put it that way. Well, Hannibal. <laughs> yeah, right? He's a murderer, kind of thing, right? They just have worse murderers to, to make him look good. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is yeah. weird because, you know, yeah, Silence of the Lambs, if you isolate it by itself, yeah, Clary Starling is the hero but yeah who who has all who has the the popular tv series called hannibal that's played by a scars guard that everyone it is not played by okay mads mickelson i why do i confuse <laughs> mads mickelson with a scars guard but you know all, all the folks are like, fawning yeah. over him and everything yeah and in the sequels the sons of lambs hannibal becomes more of a heroic figure he only kills rude people mm-hmm. and there are worse people after him right and that is uh, and it comic books like venom was a villain became a hero because we counter-read these things. It's okay to counter-read. It's okay to say, ah, I can see this text and change it for myself and revise it mentally. And, and the best stories mean more than one thing. If a story only means one thing, it's not worth rereading. And it just becomes a lecture or something too didactic to be entertaining. So a fiction, whether it's a, a film or a book or a story, should be fruitfully reread. And the way to fruitfully reread something is to leave it open for people to inhabit other roles and to reclaim the abject and to reclaim their suppressed and to make it their own. Well, let, let me throw this out there real quick, just because it seems to kind of tie into it. Because, you know, when I think of uh, something that could be read multiple ways, I think of the Star Wars films, where yeah. it kind of used to be very black and white, empires evil equated to, to Nazism and everything. The rebels are, you know, standing up to them. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, though, who, who, who do people identify with? You know, people always root for Vader and yeah. so on and so forth. In the, the new trilogy of films, you know, people are fawning over, you know, uh, but, but, you know, they're still representative of alt-right or whatnot. So what do you do in a situation like that where you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for, I'm not really rooting for the bad guys in the films, but I think they're cool or clever. Or I identify with them. But in the society at large, I would be kind of slapped on the wrist for that. Yeah. Well, that's what it's for. That's what, that, that's what those texts are for. <clears throat> to experience that, oh, Darth Vader is cool and awesome and scary. I'm scared of him, but if I am him, I can't be scared of him. And also, you can read Star Wars in different ways, too. Like, you know, oh, so basically, you're a kid. You're taken away from your family uh, to go live with these desert monks, <laughs> terrorist society, and commit acts of terrorism. So basically, Luke Skywalker is an Al-Qaeda ISIS agent. <laughs> and surely in the early films, the, the prequels, I mean, the Jedi are uh, tyrannical. They happily allow slavery to live alongside robots. Clearly, the latter would eliminate the former if they felt like it. Right? They are uh, a, a decadent sect. Um, they are uh, basically a royal family oriented around bloodlines and genetic superiority. Or Dune, right? Dune is a love, beloved by the alt-right, despite the fact that it's basically, you know, Herbert's idea was a, an anti-imperialist story. So a treatise, you know, goes insane and that kind of thing, and uh, things pile up. That's the discussion of, you know, is of the Middle East in the mid-century, and oil wars and things like that, and oil conflicts. But it can be read both by the left and the right, fruitfully by counter-reading. So it becomes a side of struggle, you know? Do you consider yourself a cult writer writing cult fiction? Well, my royalty statements tend to be in the uh, double digits. So yes, (laughs) that's one one definition of cult writers, somebody who nobody reads. But of course, people who are very famous are cults as well. Like Stephen King is very famous, but he also has a cult inside that his popular writer, his popular audience. 
So I guess I'm still, yeah, I'm a cult figure. Mm-hmm. I wish I had a bigger cult, like, <laughs> like all cult leaders. <laughs> I, you know what, though? The, the forward to the People's Republic of Everything, uh, the guy that wrote the, uh, the introduction to it, you know, he, he does say you've got, you've got your ardent fan base on social media, so yeah, you can true. have your cult. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, when People's World came out, a few months afterward, it was a uh, dollar deal at uh, Kindle Deal of the Day. And someone who I've known for uh, 20 years who's constantly asking me questions, constantly talking to me on social media, who has a little journal that he keeps of things I say that he thinks are clever for his writing and writes them down, said, oh, guess what, Nick? I finally bought one of your books because of Donald. <laughs> Good friend. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, I'll give a little, I guess I give away too much free content with my tweets and stuff and, and my journal the old days. But, uh, so yeah, I mean, I basically have an audience of people who like read things for free online and who shop with books. So yeah, that's a, that's a cult figure. On the subject of releasing books and whatnot, it seems about every four to five years, you do have a short story collection coming out. Mm-hmm. People's uh, Republic of Everything's been out for a little bit. Are, are, is there another short story collection in the works that we might see in 2022, 2023? Well, in January, I've got something coming out called uh, The Planet Breaker Sun, which is kind of a collection. It has a collection, it's a collection of two. Oh, okay. <laughs> so That's a cool out- title though. Yeah. It is from the Outspoken Author series of uh, small, almost chapbook length books by P.M. Press. They've done Le Guin, they've done Ken Stanley Robinson, Michael Moorcock, and they did me. And usually what it is is three or four short stories and one new short story and an interview and a piece of nonfiction, like an essay. But I had the opportunity to say, oh, I'm going to write a novella. So I wrote a new novella called The People's, uh, called, not People's Republic, called The Planet Breakers. It's a, it's a science fiction novella uh, in the far future post-singularity science fiction. There's a reprinted short story called Ring, 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 Ring. Uh, an essay by me about my days as a term paper artist and an interview with Terry Bisson, who is the series editor. So that'll be coming out in January. So that's kind of like a collection because it has two stories in it. It was to have three stories in it, but then the third one got uh, pushed out for uh, space reasons. Any other things on the horizon for you, Nick? Uh, maybe a little further out for people to keep an eye out for? Well, Sooner Up is Bullet Time. My 2012 novel is coming back into print. It was part of uh, Cheesing Publications, which imploded about a year ago. Yeah, it did. For, uh, I guess, financial, then interpersonal reasons. They had not paid people for money. They didn't pay me for five years. I didn't even realize that it was owed money. And I work in publishing. I keep checking my fi- form, my figures, and it wasn't selling, the, but the ebook was selling. So they, were, they owed me some money. But they had other people much more money, many more. Because well, authors <laughs> were there, you know, were thousands of dollars. And then it came out that they were really... Uh, abusive toward their staff and abusive to their interns, just making them do more and more work for less and less money, castigating them interpersonally. And so that kind of fell apart. The upside is that many of us got our rights back and many of us are being printed by Open Road Media, which is primarily an ebook publisher that does print on demand. So Bullet Time will be back uh, next month. Then next November, 2021, my novel, The Second Shooter will be out. And that's a speculative thriller about a guy, a reporter who is going around researching mass shooting events and reports of second shooters at these events. Because almost every mass shooting you have, people say, oh, there seem to be multiple shooters. Oh, there's only one. And in the real world, this is because of the, you know, the night fog confusion and war echoes, witnesses are unreliable. But what if it wasn't the case? What if there really were these second shooters who can come and vanish and uh, reappear again when needed to shoot people? Very cool. But that'll be in November. I'm actually writing it now. I've got to finish it uh, this month. Just out of curiosity, just because uh, Move Underground just recently got a re-release and um, uh, your other book is about to be re-released. Do, do you, 
re-edit them anyway or you know change anything or like nope that the original version is the definitive version and that's it well when i put the independent presses like nightshade books came out well we were running around here with nightshade books originally then with prime books and so any opportunity to, to recopy it is good so i think we end up with um about five pages worth of changes maybe 125 copy errors changed in move underground uh maybe about 40 50 changed in well the time also well the time it was a canadian publisher and one of the many fights I had with them was they wanted Canadian spellings. Ah. Uh. You know, an American author writing about an American scene, and usually what happens is that you, write, you follow the country of origin and of location. So Ramsey Campbell, published in America, has British spellings in his book because he's British and he writes in, primarily in British setting. But Cheezine was getting money from the Canadian government to produce Canadian content. So they had to look more Canadian. So I got rid of many extraneous U's from labor and neighbor and, and that kind of thing. So I was happy to do that. And uh, so, so minor changes, but better cleaned up, clean up copy editing. And I always try to take a chance to copy edit again because uh, copy editing is kind of a lost art because uh, all the publishers fired their copy editors year ago, years ago. When, when we, I was young, copy desks were in publishing offices. They were employees of the publishers. Now they're all freelancers and they're all excellent. But if you're a freelancer, you can't say no to work. Otherwise you won't get more work. So they often take on more they can, than they can handle. Ah. And so the copy editing has, because of speed up and production bottlenecks and overburdening freelancers and not wanting to pay health insurance has sort of de degenerated. So whenever there's a new release, there'll be uh, pages and pages of changes. Under My Roof has also changed significantly from its original publication to, uh, to where it is in the People's Republic. In fact, the, the ending was confusing in the first edition because a line break was missing. So people thought a character had died and someone has to take it over speaking. But in fact, that's not the case. They thought it was the father talking in the last few uh, paragraphs, but actually, it's actually still the kid. And that confusion was based on a production error made by the original publisher, which is going through a bankruptcy that, literally that day. Like, we got to get this out or we won't be able to get it out. Press print, <laughs> upload it to the printer, or they would have seized the copies. So good, I got the book out you know, back in 2007, but even better than in 2018, the ending that actually makes sense is in the book. It could have been worse. It could have ended on a one-sentence paragraph. Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a book by Kit Reed called Bronze, the first edition of which is missing the last page. It ends mid-sentence, by mistake. Well, wrapping up, Nick, um, uh, how can people stay informed of, you know, your upcoming news, your upcoming projects, or if they want to see the latest shenanigans that you're a part of? Twitter's the best. Twitter is N Mama Das, N M A M A, like Mama, T S M Thomas, A S, all the vowels are A's. Facebook is mostly locked down. My blog is defunct. My website, I update once a year when I get my friend to do it. So Twitter <laughs> is, is, is where it's at. Twitter it is. Well, all Nick, right. any, any final words uh, that you want to end with? Sage like advice, zingers? Just thanks for having me on the show. I love the HP Lovecast. What a great name for a podcast. Well, well, thank you. Uh, it, it, it kind of, uh, you know, blends all the words together and it works. So we appreciate it. And I normally hate podcasts, but I made an exception for this one. So thanks. Oh, Aww. we feel super honored. Well, we, we hope in advance that, um, you know, this uh, uh, helps out Wonder and Glory Forever and all your other projects. And uh, we will have to uh, revisit uh, in a, you know, down the road as more stuff comes out. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, guys.
Thank you to Nick Mamitas for sharing his insight on his recent uh, writing projects, including The People's Republic of Everything, Sabbath, and his brand new edited anthology, Wonder and Glory Forever. We wish him success on these publications and all his upcoming projects in the next year. We would also like to thank Trevor Sewell for giving us permission to use excerpts from his song, The Train. It was an excellent accompaniment, and we are chuffed at being able to include it in this episode's intro and outro. And in upcoming events, we will have a new episode of Scholars from the Edge of Time streaming on Thursday, December 24th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and will be available afterwards for download. Nicholas and I will share projects we are working on, plans for the coming year, and time permitting our thoughts on the new Netflix animated show, Blood of Zeus. And in case you missed it, in November, our guest was comic book writer Michael Odin. He is the creator-writer of the successfully crowdfunded series, Elysian Fields. On this podcast, Michael shared his writer's journey before we turn to discussing his new tournament battle comic book series set in ancient Greece. He also revealed story details of upcoming issues. Link to the podcast is in the show notes. On episode 34 of HP Lovecast, we will discuss two short stories from the new anthology, Wonder and Glory Forever, edited by Lovecraftian scholar Nick Mamatas and published by Dover Publications. This podcast will drop on Sunday, December 20th. Copies of this collection can be purchased at your favorite online booksellers. And on episode 35, we'll return to our regular schedule of the first Sunday of the month, in which we will turn our discussion to Jason Parent's Eight Cylinders, published by Crystal Lake Publishing last month. This Lovecraft-inspired novella has been described by award-winning author Lee Murray as a wild mix of Fury Road, Dante's Inferno, and Lovecraftian horror. Whip fast and oozing darkness, monster lovers won't be able to resist this slick little read. Pick up your copy at the publisher's website or your favorite bookseller. This episode will drop on Sunday, January 3rd. HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we've either edited or contributed uh, to. As always, thank you for listening. Please keep safe and healthy.